You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 21. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. All the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has, will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God, and do it. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Our holy and eternal Father, our high King of heaven, we pray that you would now make yourself clear to us in your word, that we would hear the word of God and do it, to receive Jesus as our high King. We pray that you would do this by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader, I want to head out with Stephen and Cedric to talk about this parable of, of the sower. We'll miss you guys and have a great conversation. Well, hello everyone. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after this service. It is good to be back in New Mexico in the Lord's time zone. Uh, mountain time 
it's good to be driving on the right side of the road and on the left side of the car. That was the first time I've ever done that in England a couple weeks ago, and it was so stressful. Like, I needed to take a nap every single time I got out of the car. But it is good to be singing and praying and worshiping here with you again. Marcy and I had a, such a wonderful time together. I made some good progress in my own uh, studies and writing, and Marcy and I just got several days of rest in between all of that. So thank you, Kyle and Jordan, for helping, so helpfully feeding us God's Word over these past two Sundays. I was only able to listen on the podcast feed, so it's not the same as being here, but I'm loving Jesus and trusting in his gospel even more uh, than two weeks ago because of your, your work and your labor in the scripture. So thank you, brothers. Uh, well, we have seen over the past three weeks in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus is announcing and offering the kind of salvation that he wants to give. What is his salvation? It is a salvation of redeeming grace. It is a salvation of the forgiveness of sins. It is a salvation of inclusion and belonging. So now Luke is, over the next really chapter and a half of chapter 8 and 9, he's going to show us all kinds of responses to this kind of salvation that Jesus is announcing, which we'll finally see culminate in Peter's response in chapter 9, verse 20, that Finally, Peter will say that he believes Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But we'll get there. It's heading up to that climax in the middle of chapter 9. But tonight, in chapter 8, Jesus is going to highlight many various kinds of responses to his word, to God's word, in one of his most famous parables, what is often referred to as the parable of the sower. We've already seen a couple of short parables in Luke, even last week, uh, that Jordan explained and and gave us last week in chapter 7 with the moneylender and his two debtors. But not only is this parable of the sower a bit longer, but then Jesus even, after explaining the parable, will explain his purpose for teaching in parables. So we're going to look at this section in two halves, and not necessarily sequential halves but kind of inside-out halves, with verses 4 through 18 as the meat of the sandwich, and then verses 1 through 3, and then verses 9 through 21 as kind of the bread on either half of this sandwich. We're going to see that, first, the true hearers of Jesus are then the true family of Jesus. And so, first of all, the true hearers of Jesus, those who hear him. All right, let's skip over verses 1 through 3 for now, but we're going to come back to it in a bit. Luke tells us in verse 4 of chapter 8 that a great crowd was gathering, and people from town, from town after town came to him. It's not surprising that Jesus would get a huge crowd. We've already seen lots of huge crowds around him. After not only all of the miracles he's performed, he's also shown that he is an incredible teacher. He is teaching with, with authority. He is not like the others. So there is a huge crowd coming to Jesus to presumably just say, teach us, teach us about God. And he says in a parable. Now, the word parable itself comes from the Greek word parabolo, which just means I don't normally give you Greek words, but it's interesting to know that this word means to throw beside or uh, alongside. If you can transport yourself like back to ninth or tenth grade algebra, or you ninth or tenth graders right now, you might remember a parabola. Uh, Michelle, I think if Wikipedia reminds me uh, that a parabola is like an equidistant curve that goes like this. 
more or less. Uh, all right, so this is a parable. Uh, it's a curve that goes alongside of the point that Jesus is trying to make, what he's wanting to emphasize. So he tells this story of the, of the sower alongside the point he's trying to emphasize. And this story is a parable of a man who's throwing seed. Jesus almost uses stories that people would understand. He is using uh, stories of people or jobs or tasks that these crowds would have had a context for. Now, some of us might have planted, either in like reseeding your backyard lawn or in a backyard garden, but while we can mostly understand what's going on here, we can imagine a sower throwing seed, we're pretty far removed from a society which is almost all rural and predominantly agricultural. This story is describing something that most of these people would if not have great context for, most of them would actually do every year. And so what is it that he is describing? Let me read verses five through nine again, making a few comments on the original agricultural context, but then like Jesus, I'm gonna wait to make any like application or explanation here. So he says this, he tells them in a parabola, in a parable, in a, an alongside story. He says this in verse five, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. So you'll obviously want to sow your seed in a field that has been plowed or has been tilled. The, the dirt has been broken up. The ground has been broken up so that the ground will be not only receptive to the seed, but will also be receptive to the sunlight, to the rain, to the water. So here, the sower is going out, and either because his bag of seed is so full that it's like overflowing and spilling, or as he's getting out seed in his hand, some of the excess is just falling out of his hand, but this seed is not going to the place that it should go. It is going to hard ground. It's never going to grow there. It is on a path that gets walked on all the time, or even because uh, the ground is hard and it's not receptive, it's not going to take the seed. And so birds can easily find the seed and eat it up. So then second, he says this in verse 6, but some other seed fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. So this might be describing lots of places in the region where there was maybe like an inch of dirt, perhaps two inches of dirt that was then just like a, a top soil level on top of hard limestone underneath. It looks good on the top, but it's just rock underneath. The, this dirt can initially absorb the kind of water, the kind of sunlight that would produce the kinds of plants that in other situations might have deep roots, might grow deep roots. And so it, up, it pops, little seedlings. There's green here, and the, the sower might be excited by what is happening. But then within a month or so, it's dead because the roots had nowhere to grow. They hit their bottom. And so third, some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Thorns are weeds who demand and command the water of the dirt. They might even wrap themselves around the growing crop so that what otherwise might be good conditions for growth get choked out. And then lastly, verse 8, some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Because the soil is right, because the soil is receptive, it is clear of obstacles. Just one grain of seed, just one grain, 
of seed is then able to produce a stalk, maybe of wheat. One wheat grain can produce an entire stalk that then has hundreds of other wheat seeds, wheat grains that can then be either eaten and used, ground into bread, or then reseeded to make more exponential growth and harvest because the soil is right, it is receptive. And so Jesus says all of these things, and then verse, into verse 8, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. To which, seemingly, this huge crowd must have just heard this story, this parabola, this thrown around story, and they're like, huh, yeah, sounds good. They have no clue what's going on. They have no clue what he's talking about, presumably, because if the disciples who come to him after and say, we don't even understand this, the people who know Jesus best, then the crowds who maybe know him less, they certainly don't understand. And so before explaining, he says this in verse 10. He says to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. So that, and then quoting Isaiah 6, he says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So what in the world, why would he tell a story that would make things difficult to understand. Sometimes people will call parables kind of like earthly stories with heavenly meanings or might think of them as like some sermon illustrations to help make things more clear. But is that the case? Seemingly not. Uh, One commentator on the parable says that parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct distorted vision. This is what I do every morning when I put on my glasses. I have distorted vision, and parables act in the same way that now I can see clearly. But importantly, here Jesus says that they are also intended to confuse. These are almost like cryptic riddles. Like, if you understand the riddle, then you will understand more deeply. But most won't understand the riddle. So in that sense, these are not sermon illustrations. These are not a way to help you understand. They can be that, for, but for most, they actually do the opposite. They further confuse those who don't understand. They're meant to make you think. And as we'll see with later parables, these parables are meant to kind of backdoor sneak past your assumptions about reality and get, get behind what you think is real so that you can actually see what is really real. So we'll come back to what Jesus is doing here, confusing some and explaining to others, but what does this parable of the sower mean? This is one of the few parables that Jesus actually tells us. He explains what the parable means, or at least that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all, uh, all all three of the so-called synoptic gospel writers, they both give us this parable, and then they record Jesus's explanation of the parable. And so he says this, Jesus says this, starting in verse 11. He says, now this parable, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now stop, we can't blow past this and just want to figure out what's happening with the different soils. Throughout the Old Testament, God's word is an extremely important theme. It might actually be the theme of the Old Testament. God creates the universe by what? His word. He reveals himself to humanity through his word. By his word, he delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. The same word also enacts judgment on Egypt, on their enemies of Israel, and even on his word bringing judgment on Israel itself. His word is his wisdom. His word is a light 
for a dark world. In Ezekiel 37, God's word comes and brings life to an entire valley filled with dead and dry bones. His word brings life. Now think about this for a second. What are your words? Are your words you? Well, kind of. Your words are distinct from you, and yet your words actually are kind of like an embodiment of you, of your thoughts, of your mind, of your will, of your person. Your words are you, and they're not you. John, the gospel writer in the prologue to his gospel account, even calls Jesus the Word of God. In John 1.1, we read that the Word of God, that creative, that revelatory, that saving and judging, that wise, that life-giving Word of God was distinct from God. John says the Word, he was with God, and it, the Word, or he, was at the same time divine himself. The Word was God. The word was distinct from God, and the word was God. So Jesus is now going around in the fields of Israel, and like the, as we've seen in the past few weeks, like the Elijah, Elisha-like prophets of old, he is sowing God's word. Or we could say that he is sowing himself. He is throwing himself out to all who might hear, so that he might actually be received, that he might take root, that he might grow. And so what are the possible responses to Jesus's offering of himself, to the offer of salvation, to the word of God? These are the possible responses that Jesus observes. The first is this, verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard, who have heard the word of God. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Like the birds who eat the seeds, here Jesus says that the devil devil comes and takes away the word from someone's heart. Now, this doesn't mean that, like, God is perplexed. He's like, oh, rats! Like, we almost had one. We almost had someone who the word might take root in his heart. It was about to grow, but then the devil came and took it away. He foiled again. That's not what God thinks. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch one from my hand. Jesus will not lose one to whom he gives life. But his point is that there is actual spiritual power. There's actual opposition to the word of God taking root. Some who hear the gospel of Jesus just will not receive it. They will not receive. Seed won't grow on a path anyway right? Seed will not grow on a path anyway, but then birds can come and take away the seed just to make sure for certain. And so, he says, this is the first response from some who hear me, who hear the word of God. They will not receive, absolutely and will not. But, verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you likely know someone that this might be describing. They hear the word of Jesus and are initially convicted, are initially encouraged, are seemingly full of his life, but it was like one inch shallow topsoil. Repentance was maybe motivated out of what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7, worldly sorrow instead of godly sorrow. Repentance was about sorrow, about the consequences of sin, that I don't like the way that my sin or failure makes me feel. I don't like the way that my selfishness affects others. Why? Because of the way it affects me. 
rather than God is God. He is eternal. He is good and right and true and righteous. He is both the king of the universe and my small life. As his creature, I owe him my allegiance. I owe him my love. I owe him my life. My sin robs him of glory. My sin is treason against his goodness. And because of all of that, and because of his immense love and patience and grace and mercy, I want to know him. I want to love him with more of my heart and soul and mind and strength. Rather, the folks that Jesus describes here, who are responding in one inch deep joy, in an initial apparent growth, really for what's in it for them. It sounds awesome for me. But Jesus says, when a time of testing comes, those who are on the rock, who are in the soil but then hitting the rock, when a time of testing comes in which life in Christ no longer sounds or feels advantageous to me, when self-denial, when the obedience that are wrapped up in faith in the Lord Jesus comes and I don't like that, I'm out. Why? Because there was no depth. It was just about me, about the way that Jesus made me feel. There was quick growth, but not steady and lasting life. Certainly no fruit. And so a third kind of response Jesus then offers in verse 14. He says, As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This is similar to the last one that we saw, that we're on the rock. But other things in life here, comfort, care, security, pleasure, these are the things that, like the thorns or the weeds, that command and demand the spiritual water and nourishment that your soul needs. So that, finally, there's nothing left. There has just been distraction and distraction and distraction. A sleeping potion and a sleeping potion and a sleeping potion. The pull of our phones, the endless scrolling, the overworking, even the anxiousness about our own jobs, about paychecks, about identity and who I am because of what I do, all have the ability to grow and grow and then quickly and then slowly choke out the life of Christ. What's the old Ernest Hemingway quote about how you go financially bankrupt? Have you ever heard what he says? People go bankrupt gradually and then suddenly. Or, how others have paraphrased, you go bankrupt slowly and then all at once. Slowly and then all at once. Sadly, I've seen this from others as well, who were not receiving and who were not nourished first and foremost by the word of God, who lost their faith slowly and then all at once. Verse 15, though. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Last fall, you ladies who went on the women's retreat, you received a little excellent book called Before You Open Your Bible. If you don't have that book, I think it's like five bucks on Amazon. It's like 50 pages and so good. But there, the author, Matt Smethurst, he says that sometimes we hear people quip that we shouldn't make too much of the Bible lest we inadvertently make an idol out of it. Have you ever heard this? Hey, don't put too much emphasis on the Bible because we don't want to make an idol out of the Bible. He says, some people might say, we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The remark usually goes, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And that's true. That's true. We should affirm that point. 
But forgive me, Smethers says, if I don't think the danger of our day is taking God's word too seriously. Just consider a few passages from the Old Testament. In Psalm 56, David writes, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. There David is actually praising, worshiping the word of God. Psalm 119, David again, he says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. The word becomes the thing that that David loves and meditates on. Or even in the New Testament, in Acts 13, 48, Luke, the writer of Acts, the writer of this same book of Luke, says that in response to Paul's preaching, the Gentiles of Antioch glorified the word of the Lord. Not glorified the Lord, But these people who had received the word of God responded to the word and glorified the word. How they receive and respond to the word is actually how they receive and respond to God. This age that we live in is less of an age of the eye, the things that we can see, and is more an age of the ear, the things that we hear. So that every time we open the Bible, every time you open the Bible, you are having a burning bush moment, an encounter with the living God who speaks. And even that encounter, every time you open the Bible, is even more clear than Moses experienced at Mount Sinai. He just has a snapshot of what God is doing in time and space and in history. We have the whole thing zoomed out and can see what God has done to redeem and save sinners. I'm going to be really honest with you. Uh, Writing this sermon this week has come at a really good time because it came as a needed corrective for me. This semester has been like one of the busiest times of my life. Uh, Marcy and I were out of the country and out of a regular schedule for like a week and a half. And these past two or three months have been pretty irregular for me in carving out time to feed, to be watered, to be saturated in God's word to receive it with joy, to hold it fast in an honest and good heart, as Jesus says, to be saturated less with the cares of this world and to be more saturated from the wisdom which is from above. And so I just want to confess that to you as a minister of the word, as like a title of what any pastor ought to be, a minister of the word, as as an elder whom all of you have asked to lead and serve by doing primarily what to feed you the word. I think what I've been giving you lately hasn't necessarily been an overflowing abundance of what has been in my heart, but perhaps just maybe the fumes of past months' experience of encounters with Jesus. So I'm sorry. But isn't God good? Isn't God kind? Isn't God patient that when the water of his word does come, it waters, it restores, it brings life? Jesus, the word who was with God, the word who is God, he gives him, he gives us himself. It's, so it's, thinking about all that is why we shouldn't get too myopic in like hour by hour perhaps even in my case, month by month um, observation or evaluation of our lives. It is good and right for us from time to time. It is good and right. It is good and right for all of you today to ask yourself, perhaps over dinner tonight or with friends over coffee this week, to say, today, 
which of the four soils am I? And how I am receiving Jesus, and how I am receiving his kingship and authority in my life, and how I am receiving the word of God. How am I receiving the authority of the life-giving scriptures in my life today, right now? That's a good question to ask and to take slowly and deeply some time to think through. How am I receiving Christ, receiving his word? But perhaps more importantly, over the course of my life, which of the four soils am I? And how I am receiving the authority of Jesus and how I am receiving the authority of the scriptures in my life. Are there certain rooms in the house of my heart that are closed, locked, off limits to Jesus and his word? Or does God get it all? Does he get to come in and clean and renovate and bring light to every room? Maybe not hour by hour. We are weak. We are selfish. We are self-worshiping people. But that I really do, I really do want Jesus to have all of it, every room in my life. Like the woman anointing Jesus' feet, wiping her tears with her hair, that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That the redeeming grace of Jesus to free people from their sins, to transform them into his character, it is good and is right, and I want it now. Maybe not as much as I will a year from now. May it be so, but I am receiving him over the course of my life, and I'm growing in my love for him, and I want him to have all of me. Over the long run, which soil are you? And that's why this parable while sometimes called the parable of the sower, and then sometimes gets made out to be a parable about evangelism. You know, you ought to read a parable like this and just get out there with the word of God's salvation in Jesus because, and just throw it wherever you are. You never know which person that you're speaking to about the gospel uh, might be which soil. So just throw it, spread it liberally and wide. And that's true. And yet... If anyone is the sower in this parable, it's Jesus. This is a parable to his hearers about which soil they are. The emphasis is not on you as the sower. The emphasis is on you, the soil. Which soil are you? Back in verse 8, before he explained to his disciples, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Meaning, if you understand what I am saying to you, really take it in really contemplate, meditate, receive this. Or even, as you are listening to me, be careful how you hear. How will you receive Jesus? How will you receive the word of God? The creator of the universe is speaking to you. Will you listen? Will you perceive? Or will you only hear but not listen? And all of you parents know the difference, don't you? When your kids hear your voice, but they do not listen. They don't take your words. They don't receive them, process them, and then respond. That's hearing, but not listening. But then Jesus goes on into a different parable. Maybe you thought, wait, it would have been really good to stop the reading like right after the, the parable of the sower, because then he starts talking about a light or a lamp on a shell for something. that what, What's this have to do with anything? But Jesus says, now in another parable, to hear, to, to hear these words, but not to receive them and to respond to them is so foolish. 
Matthew uses this like uh, lamp on a, on a stand parable in Matthew 5 as kind of an evangelistic. If you light a lamp, you put it out so that everyone can see it. So let your good works shine like that. But Luke presents this parable differently. Jesus says in verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Here, the lamp, the light, is not your good works. It is Jesus. It is the light of the world. It makes no sense to have a lamp, to light a lamp in your house and then to put it under a jar or put it under your bed. Makes no sense to cover it up unless you actually don't like the light unless you actually prefer the darkness to keep secrets hidden. But the light of the world will be bright in all of the dark rooms of your life. It's going to happen. It is happening now, and it will certainly happen, fully and finally. Is that a good thing? That the lamp, the light of the world, will expose and bring light to every locked room in your house? Is that a good thing? For some, it's a good thing that you want this light in. Even the parts of your life that you hate, that you don't love, but that you actually do want his life, that you invite that light in to push out the darkness, that you realize that the authentic life isn't actually a life of self-actualization. That's actually not the life that you were created for, to become more of your authentic self. But that you were made not for self-actualization, but for self-denial, that you might be conformed not more to yourself, but to Jesus, the one who made you and created you and loves you, to him. That's when the light is actually a good thing. Or is this light certainly a future and final full light? Is that a bad and terrifying thing that you want certain rooms closed off and locked up so that you can just continue to be yourself? But how's that going? Is it bringing the joy and the meaning and the contentment that you think it is? Jesus says to you then in verse 18, take care then how you hear. Be careful how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. To the one who has understanding, more understanding will be given. And from the one who has not, not understanding, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. In other words, to the one who hears and listens, more understanding will be given, more uh, grasping hold of and taking hold of and understanding and loving of Jesus will be given, more clarity and wisdom will be given. But to the one who does not have understanding, why? Because he will not listen, because he rejects God's word, then there is a pronouncement of judgment, of, either, of even further confusion. Those who reject the word will be further confused, will be a soil that has no life, no fruit. Now, some think that this passage, along with the passage that Jesus quotes from Isaiah, is about God hardening people's hearts, maybe a a passage about like predestination or something. But rather, I think what's going on here is that the focus is on human responsibility. The focus here is on a willingness to hear by not repeating the pattern of Israel's refusal to 
hear and receive the messengers of God over and over and over, generation after generation after generation, had rejected God's word, who had come to, which had come to them through God's prophets. Jesus is telling the gathering crowds around them, around him, don't be like the generations of your fathers who rejected God's word, who rejected God's transforming grace, who rejected a call for repentance and faith. Don't be those soils. Instead, be a soil that receives his word, who receives him. Clearing out other obstacles in your life receives him and him alone. Hear the word of the Lord. And those who hear the word of the Lord, the true hearers of Jesus, now, secondly, and more briefly, become or are the true family of Jesus. The true hearers of Jesus are the true family of Jesus. So now, back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Luke tells us that soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Luke takes several verses. This is valuable, valuable space on a very expensive scroll that Luke is writing here to tell us this. Why? These three women come right on the heels of the woman that Jesus had commended at the end of chapter 7. And in these days, it would have been totally unexpected and perhaps even a bit scandalous for a traveling teacher to have a woman, to have women, to have many women in his group of traveling students or disciples. But that is exactly what is happening here, and that is exactly what Luke is highlighting. Luke tells us that the 12 are with Jesus, the 12 apostles, and then he tells us about Mary Magdalene, who Jesus had exercised seven demons from. He tells us of Joanna, the wife of a very powerful man, Chusa, Herod's chief administrator, and then Susanna. Susanna is only mentioned here. We don't have any other context for who she is, but we'll see Mary Magdalene and Joanna together again at Jesus's empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning when they are looking to care for and minister to Jesus's dead body. And they there and here are providing for Jesus out of their own means. But it's not just these three. Luke tells us that there are many others as well, many other women who, along with the men, are learning from Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are becoming like him, who are being bound together as his people. These are his people. These are his disciples, the 12 apostles, and then men and women who are together his disciples. They are his people. So now let's flip down to verses 18 through 21. Remember, there have been huge crowds, and he has warned his, all those who are hearing to be careful how they hear. In light of the salvation of grace that Jesus is bringing, how will you receive him? How will you receive the sowed seed of the word of God? Verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers, my family, are the fourth soils who hear, receive, and respond. Now, initially, this sounds really harsh. It sounds really dismissive. Like his mom and his brothers just want to come say, say hello. And he's like, nope, they're not my family. No time for them. And I think it's actually very hard to believe that Jesus refuses to see them at all. 
Like presumably in the next hour or so after the crowds have finally dispersed, I think it's safe to assume that he eventually went to see his mom and his brothers. But he is saying here in this moment that these people, those who are with him, his disciples, these men and women who are belonging to him, who are following him, who are learning from him, who are clinging to him, his disciples who hear, receive, and respond to his word are his true family. This is continuing the teaching of John the Baptist from Luke 3, that in this new covenant that Jesus is beginning to institute here, genetic first birth is meaningful, but it is not saving. It is not covenantal. Those who are the disciples of Jesus belong to his, covenant, his coming covenant of his body and his blood. That is his true family, or what Paul calls the household of God. And so today, on this Palm Sunday, the day that we remember when Jews all over Jerusalem were preparing for the Passover, they were looking for a spotless lamb to sacrifice on behalf of their entire family. On that day, Jesus rides in on a donkey, and he rides into the city where families are looking for a, a lamb to sacrifice on their behalf, and he says, pick me. Here I am. I am your spotless lamb. I am the one that you want. And he rides in on a donkey, a beast of burden, used to carry loads too heavy for we weak humans to carry. Why do you use a donkey? Why do you use a donkey? To carry things that you are not strong enough to carry. A donkey is stronger than you. And he says, cast your burdens on me. Load up your weaknesses. Load up your sins, your failure, your selfishness, your humiliation, your shame, your wickedness. Put it on me. And I will carry it into the city, and I will put it on trial, and I will take it to the cross. My death, so that you might live. My shame for your glory my being cast out so that you might belong, my sonship, that you might be adopted as my brothers and sisters, as the very sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. The sons and daughters of God, the family of the word, the family of Jesus. His word goes out. His word goes out amongst the crowds here in this one day, his word then continues to go out for the past 2,000 years, and his word goes out today, here in this room. So be careful how you hear. Hear and listen. Perceive, respond. Both now, perhaps for the first time in your life, repent and believe today. He will forgive your sins. He will welcome you into the family of God, but also ongoingly. Christian, will you hear his word today? And then will you seek out so that you might receive his word tomorrow morning, on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday, and on Thursday, and on Friday, and on Saturday, and then we'll come again and together gather around his word? But will you receive his word this week? Not surviving on the fumes of past knowledge, not surviving on the fumes of past experiences of Jesus, but that you might see him, hear him, and know him today and tomorrow and the next. But forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own 
That is the salvation of God in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus' ownership over Paul is what prompted Paul to have and pursue ownership of the knowledge of God. God comes to us first. He loves us first so that we might love him. And he frees us by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who has lived and died for us on the cross. This is the salvation that he is offering. The word of God sowed out to all of us. Might we receive it with joy, with faith and belonging. Let's pray that we would. Our Father, we pray for ongoing faith. We pray for deepening faith, that we might hear your word, the word of life who is the Lord Jesus, that we might hear the word of life that is given to us in the scriptures, and that we might receive all of it, even the difficult parts, the parts that we don't like to receive, the parts that confront our deepest sensibilities, our deepest selfishness, but that we might receive it with joy, that we might repent and believe ongoingly for the rest of our lives. Might we grow in our trust in you? Might we grow in our joy in you? We pray that you would sow your seed deeply in us that we might produce fruit, that might produce exponential growth. God, might your work in us through your word, might it bring exponential growth to those around us, that the seed in us might Uh, continue on to many, many others for their joy, for our joy, for your glory. We pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.